0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from techtables.com, and you're listening to The Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events. We offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify. Thank you to Sanjay Gupta for taking time to come on the show and meet with me. In today's episode, we'll cover where the SBA sees the future of AI and ML. We'll talk about Sanjay being a business-first technologist and challenging the status quo in IT. We're going to talk about the story of the SBA implementing the CARES Act Congress passed in March, what advice Sanjay would give to CIOs and CTOs in a digital first world so they don't get fired, the importance of customer experience, the importance of an agile mindset, and the SBA's success with this 90-day sprints. But that's quite enough for me. Without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome Sanjay Gupta, CIO at the Small Business Administration. Welcome to Tech Tables. Super excited for you to come on today. Glad to be here. Awesome. Love it, Sanjay. And so I was reading why the U.S. needs a strategy for AI. I know it's maybe about a year old or so. I saw that was pretty good by the CTO of the United States. And he said that we must invest in the industries of the future, a few industries, there are a few industries more important than AI for the SBA. Where do you see the future of AI and ML? And before we kick off today's episode, I wanna give a big thank you to one of our brand partners who keeps this podcast free to the listener. Nagara is a leading provider of digital government services partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagaro offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desk, cybersecurity and more. Make sure to check out nagaro.com. That's n a g a r r o.com.
1: Great question actually Joe, and thank you for that. Let me begin with just doing a little context setting around artificial intelligence and machine learning or AI ML as we refer. First off, I use the concept of creators and consumers. And the reason that's important to talk about at the onset is because creators are people who create the algorithms for the artificial intelligence and consumers are pretty much everybody else, like you and me, hopefully, who use that algorithms. And the reason I bring those two distinctions is because for the large part, at least in my assessment, I would say about 95 to 98% of the users would fall in the consumer category and there's a small portion that falls under the creator category. And rightfully that should be how it is. And the reason I wanna bring that distinction is because oftentimes if you do not apply the lens of a creator versus a consumer, things can get a little murky in the AI ML space. So I I usually begin the AI ML discussion with that. Now in terms of the question about where are we SBA going forward in terms of the AI ML footprint, first off clearly applying my own concept we are a consumer of AI ML. And to be more specific, we are more in the machine learning category as opposed to the artificial intelligence category. So we have implemented cybersecurity tools which help us with the to improve our cybersecurity posture. And let me give a simple example of anomaly detection to help clarify how we're using machine learning in our environment today. So for example, Let's say I logged in in Washington, D.C. on the ESPN network, say, at 8 a.m. Eastern. And then, say, at 9 a.m. Eastern, my login credential shows coming from Los Angeles, California. Clearly, I could not be at 8 a.m. Eastern in Washington, D.C. and at 9 a.m. Eastern in Los Angeles, California. So what the system will do is will raise an alert. It's an anomaly to improbable travel and alert our security analyst to look into this further. So that's just a simple example of how we are using anomaly detection, which is form of machine learning. Now in terms of your question about where do we see us in the future, we certainly would see, I foresee we will increase the use of machine learning, anomaly detection. We're also using machine learning capabilities for natural language processing and sentiment analysis. So I would see we'd continue to increase the use of that. We're also using algorithmic-based decision support for credit management, credit risk assessment, and fraud detection. So I would see that we would continue to increase the use of these services, which use algorithms as the basis. So that's a long way of answering your question, but that's how I see the use of AI ML from an SBA perspective.
0: Yeah, no, that's really great. Definitely seems from a very broad use that you'll be able to implement machine, which which is really great. So I was curious, I know when we talked before, this is your first public sector job. And so I, I wanted to get your experience from the private sector. You think like a businessman, you kind of have that business technologist blend together. Can you just talk about challenging the status quo and always looking for solutions?
1: Sure. As you said, this is, I've been here at the Small Business Administration for about three and a half plus years. First time in the federal government, my entire career prior to that has been in the private sector. I was a CIO CTO for almost 14 years, I've run a consulting practice, and I've also authored about 20 plus research papers when I was CIO CTO to share my experiences with my fellow CIO CTOs. And one of the things I've found in my entire career is you always start with the business first. Technology for the sake of technology is probably not a good idea, and I have use this belief as my foundation throughout my career in consulting as a practitioner, CIO, CTO, and I'm applying the same principles here as well. My consulting career gave me the opportunity to work across many industries globally. And one of the first things I used to do is understand the business drivers, understand the business market scape, and then figure out technology solutions that would be best suited to meet that market space. And so that's always how I've approached solving problems, using technology as a tool, as opposed to using technology for the sake of technology. In terms of the challenging the status quo, one of the things I've learned over the career, and which is something I've applied here at the SBA as well, is that to innovate and to be thinking outside the box, you have to have an inherent belief that you can use technology to solve a problem in a better way than what you are doing today. And so that's the inherent belief I go in with and look for opportunities to see how I can improve the mission outcomes, the business outcomes by the application of technology as a tool amongst other tools. So that's how I've been approaching situations and that's how I've used my experience and knowledge here at the SBA in challenging the status quo and modernizing the IT foundation for the SBA.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think. Bringing that business background, studying the business first, and then asking the question, hey, how can I layer on the technology? Really important. So, when the CARES Act was passed in March, the SBA was suddenly in charge of 10 times the amount of usual funds it has to distribute to small businesses. I only got the Wall Street Journal cover on it. I'm sure it was hectic and crazy. I grabbed a quote that you said we're trying to push about 349 billion through the program in about 10 days or less. And that's really incredible. (laughs) So walk us through the timeline. I'm just curious, walk us through the timeline of, if you probably reading the Wall Street Journal like me, Congress passes the act, and then you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, now my team has to actually execute the technology behind it to actually deliver this. Can you just maybe recount that story just from your own perspective?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let me do a little fact-sharing, if you will. And actually, the volume was actually more than 10 times. And I think you're referencing the time when the first tranche or the first round of the CARES Act was passed for about 350 mil, a billion. Since so then, that number had increased through subsequent Congress legislation. But nevertheless, so a few facts that I think will help lay the foundation of the volume and velocity of transactions we were dealing with through the March, April, May, June timeframe, if you will. So first off, the Office of Disaster Assistance at the SBA, since March has processed more loans, disaster loans to be more specific, than they have processed in the entire 67 year history of the SBA. So let me say that one more time. We have processed more loans in the last about 100 plus days for disaster support that we then we had processed in the entire 67-year history of the SBA. So that sort of gives you one point of comparison of the volume and velocity of transactions we are dealing with. The other side, which has also been in the news quite a bit, and I'm sure you and others have read about, is what's called the Paycheck Protection Program, or P, which is one of our SBA loan guarantee programs. In that program, the number you were referencing, the CARES Act when it was enacted in March, actually March 27th, or Friday, there was $349 billion that were appropriated for the the program. And we at the SBA processed that in roughly about 14 days. And just to again give you a compare contrast on that, Joe, we typically in a year process this volume of loans in our loan guarantee program that we processed in one day. So simple math, One day we processed the loans that we would typically process in one full year's time. So 14 years worth of loan processing for loan guarantees we did in about 14 days. And so that's the staggering amount of transactions we were asked to do processing. And obviously it was a good reason. The economic recovery was hinged on this. And we at the SBA found ourselves at the forefront of this. But let me kind of recount back and give you a little perspective on how this thing journey started for us. So in the third week of March, it was before actually the CARES Act which had passed on the 27th of March, the president had declared the global pandemic COVID-19 as a national disaster. So our disaster processing and disaster loan processing had actually begun before the CARES Act. And the floodgates there had already opened for us. And then when the CARES Act was passed or enacted on the 27th of March, the program also kicked off and we were given about a week to start the process but we were also told that we don't really need to wait for a week to start processing that. So the first order of business for us was actually to move our entire SBA staff to a telework status. And what that meant is, overnight we had to ramp up our capabilities so to ensure that all of our staff was telework capable. And why was that important? It was simply important because we needed to ensure SBA's business operations were maintained and there was no break in that. And why was that important is obviously we needed to process the B program and the economic disaster injury load program or EDIL program in a short period of time for helping the nation with its economic recovery. So certainly those were very tiring times. There were long days and nights, I think they blended seamlessly for a lot of us, myself included. It was a blur of time quite frankly as we look back and see how we scaled up to that volume of transactions. And there was numerous things we did. We implemented new portals, we augmented existing capabilities because of the sheer volume. And just to give you an illustration, one of our disaster loan application portals, which is where the disaster people would come in and put in the application, needless to say, the floodgates had opened and there was a tremendous volume of transactions coming through that. So first, obviously we started to beef up that solution by adding few more resources behind it. I'd recognized early on that we were likely to run into performance issues. So within a few hours, I worked with my team and we stood up another solution in parallel, if you will. And what we did is we simple, we put up a simple web page, we put all the loan applications in there, and we asked the users to download those applications, fill those applications, and upload those applications into a secure site. And I was putting that as a stopgap solution because we were working with another partner for ours to set up a web portal, which would allow us to do an intake on our economic injury disaster loan applications. but that was roughly about a week away. So when I set this temporary solution up, I can just give you another staggering amount of data that we collected was in less than about a hundred hours worth of time, we saw that we had ingested over a terabyte of data through applications that our users would download, fill in, and then submit back to this portal. So in a span of about eight days, we had three different solutions we were working on to help from a disaster loan application standpoint, because just the sheer volume was something that none of us probably had anticipated or foreseen the extent of that. But certainly we were able to successfully move forward because we'd already established a cloud foundation in the years prior. And I'll talk more about it in subsequent questions here.
0: Yeah, that, that's really great. I actually don't want to jump ahead, but I am i know the foundation, the Cloud Initiative Foundation that you laid in 2017 was, I'm sure, a blessing for when this came around. I was curious, did you hear the story, it was a pretty cool story, of Mark Cuban and then the CEO of Citizens Bank of Edmond, Jill Castella. Did you hear that story of the two of them working together to process, I think he was like funding the SBA loans. I've read it before, but it was pretty interesting. And then the SBA, I think, filled that. I'll have to send you the article.
1: I'm yeah, I'll, I like to read to it, but I think you may be referencing. Oh, so one of the things that we do part of the PPP program, which I like said was a loan guarantee program. What that means is the SBA works with a set of financial institutions. lending institutions that process the actual loan applications and they work directly with the borrowers. And then we at the SBA receive their validated applications and then we make a disposition on whether we will, we being SBA, guarantee that loan from from that standpoint. So I think the reference you're making to is most likely I would imagine that they were working with some lending institutions. There are many lending institutions that are part of the SBA platform, if you will. But I'll be happy to take a look at that article and then I'll maybe send you some more detailed commentary on that on a subsequent time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I So I just looked it up so I could refresh. So I think they created a website to automate the SBA's 11-page PE loan forgiveness application. Yeah, a, yeah, a lot of the
1: lending institutions on their own took on some of the uh, IT-based either automations or validations. And then different institutions and lending institutions took a different approach. But obviously, time was of the essence. And so we at the SBA, and including I would imagine the lending institutions, were working at a furious pace in trying to see how they could address the deluge of demand, if you will.
0: I think it's just everyone around the clock was spitting out solutions so fast. It It was really incredible. And I think just from your scene from like behind the scenes on your end, you're living it in the late nights, early mornings. I'm sure a little bit was stressful, but was, we talked in 2017. That just really laid the foundations. But before we get there, you're really successful. And I was curious about what would get a and I know you're a CTO, but what would get a CIO fired today? Not being digital first is something that I've heard some other CEOs and CIOs and CTOs talk about. So I know you're a CTO, but what advice would you give to CIOs and CTOs in a digital first world so they wouldn't get fired?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very important question. And I think we all know the average tenure of people with chief information officer or chief technology officer is not a very long duration on average across the industry. So I think in a broad brush sense, I would say, Joe, it is usually if the IT leader, he or she, is not lockstep and barrel with the business. And what I mean by that is, the business demands usually do not allow a lot of luxury of time to be able to respond to it. And I think I've seen this in my experience in the past that one of the common concerns that the business leaders have with their IT shop is it takes IT too long to put solutions together. And I think that is a common complaint because I think as as well as I know, the dynamics of the business landscape are not going to wait for somebody to find a solution or look for a solution or wait too long to put that solution in place. The competitive forces will play and, if you will, provide the solution or fill the gaps if your business entity is not able to come up with a solution quickly enough. So certainly, one of the things that I think you're talking about, Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box, I actually happened to be on that event, the virtual event I was attending when he talked about that. And I think I'll give you another example. So for example, in the last about 100 plus days or 220 days or something like that, I think from an SBA standpoint, and I can almost project it to say to most organizations, both public and private sector, just imagine how little paper we are using or printing. If we had all been in offices, you could imagine there's a lot of paper that gets printed slash used, you sign, and documents get routed. But I'd like to say that, at least from an SBA standpoint, that amount of paper has been significantly cut down. So what does that mean? It means we are initiating business workflows in a digital-only manner. We are completing those business workflows in a digital-only manner, and there's no paper in between, if you will. For a lot of us sitting in their home offices or any other offices, How would you route paper from my office to your office? As an example, obviously I can scan it and send it back to you and back and forth, but that's a very inefficient way of doing business. So one of the things I've seen happen here is that we as a collective community, just not the IT community, but the business community as well, have adapted and adopted digital workflows. And I think that's really paramount. So going forward, I think it has been predicated on the fact that You have a modern IT organization, which allows you to do that collaboration in a digital fashion. The other aspect of, from a digital standpoint, if you think about it is, being able to do virtual communications and collaborations, right? So you have to have some kind of infrastructure in place to be able to allow you to do that with a virtual workforce. And right now we're almost getting into the six months into this global pandemic situation, and it's probably unknown how long more we will be in this situation. So certainly I would say to net it out, IT leaders that are more in line with current modern practices and are able to respond to the business quickly are the ones who will probably have a longer tenure in their positions. And conversely, obviously, the people who are a little behind in the technology adaption and being able to pivot quickly are likely to be under the microscope, if you will.
0: Yeah, no, that's really great. And I do, that is right, Aaron Levy, I do like him. He puts out a lot of really great stuff on all things digital and any blogs or podcasts he's on something you you did mention the, the inefficient use of the paper workflows just i think my first job i interned at some company i don't even remember exactly the company but i just remember having to take the paper and walk it over and i was always thinking someone or i'd even scan it in i'm like there's got to be a better way than this I was just ahead of the curve. No, (laughs) this is before the Dropbox and Box and all that. And the fax machine was still a thing. No, I love that. I love that story. Just as far as moving from paper to digital, there's actually a really similar story with Gary Branley, who's the CIO of the city of Atlanta. Yeah, he just moved all of everyone off paper. I want to say it was in two days. It was something incredible. And they just had to eliminate it because people are going to their homes, they're teleworking, and it just really transformed everything. So From reading online, I know that customer experience is a big priority for the SBA and for you. Obviously taking a business first approach. Talk about the importance of the SBA providing an excellent experience for its customers.
1: Absolutely. So like I said, I come from the private sector and the customer experience has been near and dear to me. I understand the business relevance of that and also obviously the technology relevance of that. And just quite frankly, In the public sector, because you don't necessarily have competitive forces, customer experience has not traditionally been a very important attribute, if you will. And then so one of the things when I came on board here, I realized that we needed to do many things to help improve customer experience. So let's just do a quick definition of what does customer mean in our context. So... There's two types of customers that the way I define for SBA. So one is an internal customers, which are everybody who's not in the IT world within the SBA. So call them their internal customers. And then there's the external customers, external to SBA, if you will. And those are all of the people who are representing the small business community, the entrepreneurs, which is what we at the SBA are there to service and provide services for them, right? And so one of the objectives has been how can we improve that and what does that improvement look like? What are the attributes of improving customer experience? So first and foremost, one of the things that's important is when the customers, the external customers, to be more precise, when they're transacting with PSBA they are able to reduce the friction of their transaction, right? And there's always all kinds of friction in place. And so reducing that is one way to say, this is how we are improving customer experience. Number two, and not in any order of priority, is that we're helping them complete the transactions faster. So if it took us X days to do something for the business customers, now we are doing it in X minus Y days in a lesser time. And then we're offering them, if you will, self-service capabilities so that they can look up the status of the transaction, if you will, it's a loan application, as an example, or a loan guarantee. And then we're also working towards making the information more accessible to them in a secure manner, obviously, but accessible through, as you would imagine, through mobile devices. So all of our web properties, we've converted them to become responsibly designed so they can have a much better user experience when they are accessing SBA's myriad of web properties. So those are some examples of what we're doing. Another example I let me try to share with you, which is very important, is around I launched this initiative called the Enterprise Single Sign-on Initiative. And it's a mouthful, but if you parse it down, we're trying to reduce the number of user IDs and passwords our customers, meaning our external customers, having are having to create with the SBA to interact with the SBA. So what we're saying is we use the shared services for identity management, which comes from another federal government agency called the General Services Administration or the GSA, and we're using that shared service to do identity management. And that allows us to not only help our customers who work with the SBA to use that single identity, but if the same customer is also working with other federal agencies who also have to use the same identity solution, then they don't have to have multitude of IDs. So one of the common problems I think you and I both face in our personal professional lives is we have one too many or way too many user ids and passwords or some credentials to interface and interact with whatever we are doing it in our personal professional lives and so this is helping us reduce that sprawl of user ids and passwords and help them secure this information and they can work with us so there's many aspects of that we certainly believe that user experience and customer experience is going to be paramount regardless if you're in the public sector or the private sector to help improve our services and service delivery to them
0: yeah i love that so you have the internal customers the non-it folks then you have the entrepreneurs the external customers and then some of the attributes reducing the friction so great helping them complete their transactions faster really great X minus Y days, self-service applications, also really great, accessible in a secure manner, especially mobile devices. Love the enterprise SSO initiative, reducing the number of IDs across the different government sectors, really great. The shared services, those are some really great examples and attributes of actually implementing at the SBA. But before, before you get to the attributes, another, it happens to be an A word, I didn't plan it this way, but an important piece of success is having an agile mindset. And we talked about the attributes, but let's talk about the importance of having an agile mindset in developing these proactive solutions. And now you can touch upon the clouds, the cloud initiatives from 2017 too.
1: Certainly, yeah. So Joe, I think I'd mentioned about looking from the customers from the outside in, if you will, and how they are looking to reduce the time for the transactions. The other thing I talked about earlier is also, and that's a common resonating business, if you will, concern with IT is it takes longer to deliver business solutions or business capabilities. And so the Agile mindset, I use the word Agile mindset, I know there's an Agile methodology as well in the IT world for developing new solutions. And I use the word Agile mindset is because I'm not just only going to limit myself to the Agile methodology. The agile mindset implies that you are able to respond to the business needs. You are able to flexibly find new solutions that are creative, that are innovative. And I'll give you an example. The global pandemic that we all are in right now, no one had anticipated what the impact is or was going to be. And I still don't think we have a clear idea of where this is going to end. But that changed the business dynamics dramatically for every organization in the private sector or the public sector. And certainly for us as well in the public sector, we moved to telework and then we had this immense volume of transactions we were trying to facilitate. So the agile mindset is all about trying to be able to think on your feet, look for solutions and look for solutions that address the business need. And I think to that extent, there are two main factors. The first factor to me is always understanding the business landscape first recognizing what are the business drivers, what is it the business is trying to achieve, what outcomes are they looking for. And then you have to also have a good understanding of the technology landscape to see what are the various solutions available at your disposal and then be able to apply those solutions from a technology standpoint to produce the outcomes you're looking for. And you have to do it in a quick manner. For example, I talked about we implemented many solutions And I think the longest time any solution that we implemented took about eight days, eight calendar days, to be more specific. And let me make it a more further point on that is, if you convert that into hours, that's less than 200 hours of elapsed time. So one of the things we did in our SBA's COVID-19 response was, if you will, change the unit of time. And what I mean by that is, no longer we were talking in weeks or months, or not even days, we were talking in hours. We went from no solution to a solution sometimes in 12 hours, sometimes in 100 hours, or sometimes in less than 200 hours was the max. And so the luxury of time was not there. We had to operate in a mindset which was like, okay, I need to get a solution out there and continue to iterate on that and build on that. One of the perfect examples I'll talk about is we implemented something called the customer service hub. So. Put simply, like most organizations, we at the SPN are different. We have email IDs, if you think about it, customer service at your domain name, uh, followed by that, right? And most organizations use emails to receive customer inquiries, customer support information, and so we were no different. Very soon, our customer support email boxes, if you will, were just overflowing with the amount of data and the amount of inquiries we were receiving. And so we implemented a solution and I got the first iteration of the solution done in four days, less than hundred hours if you we had iteration one done. And that was done back in March. Today, as we speak almost at the end of the month of August now, I think we've gone through 12 different iterations and continue to build the capabilities iteratively quickly and deploy it out from a business needs standpoint. And we continue to build on that. So that's the example of an agile mindset that I talked about. I think it's very important, it's paramount because the business really does not have a lot of, if you will, patience, because traditionally IT has not been able to respond fast enough. Quite frankly, that is what I refer to when I talk about an agile mindset.
0: Oh, I love that. So I recorded a podcast episode I mentioned earlier with Gary Brantley, CIO of the City of Atlanta, titled The New Superheroes, How CIOs, I guess you could swap out and put in CTOs, drive organizational transformation with people first. Gary mentioned he has this 555 principle I know he probably stole it from somebody but basically it was what can we execute in five days what can we execute in five weeks and what can we execute in five months talk about the sba's success and i know you've already touched upon it but with its 90-day sprints i know you've had a lot of success with those
1: yeah yeah and i think i'll bring up the cloud piece here as well i know you we talked about briefly in the last question but i didn't talk much about it but yeah so one of the things i started with when i onboarded here in 2017 was it was very quick assessment that I did and I realized that we needed to build a strong foundation and a strong foundation meant using a cloud and one of the things i talk about and I believed in this is the fact that to be responsive to the business you have to have solutions in place from a technology standpoint that allows you to be nimble and agile and responsive and I've known this from my previous experiences that the cloud foundation is one of those tools in the IT arsenal which allows you to build a very agile foundation. So we started with that and we went from no cloud to a design architecture, a migration plan, and something called as an authority to operate. It's something which applies in the federal world. I never heard that term in the private sector, but that's something you got to do to be able to run something in production when you are in the public sector environment. And we did that in 82 calendar days. And then that was one of the cornerstones of our foundation for modernization. Little had I known at that point in time when we started this journey, that one of the missions for the SBA is about what's called as disaster assistance. And what that means is that when natural disasters, and if you may remember in fall of 2017, there were three major hurricanes, Hurricane Harvey, Irma and Maria that hit, and that caused a lot of damage and destruction. And so our Office of Disaster Assistance ramped up to support the surge in demand for that. And when I say ramped up, they ramp up in terms of staff. And so one of the things that happens is they have a mechanism to bring on more staff. So normal times, our Office of Disaster Assistance is about 800 or so people. The peak time for Harvey and Maria timeframe, we had about nearly 6,000 people just in the Office of Disaster Assistance. And that was done over a period of literally over 60 days. So that's when the first instance of our cloud foundation allowed us to rapidly respond to the disaster assistance needs. Had we not been in the cloud foundation, we would have gone the traditional route of buying more hardware, and then it takes some time for procurement, then you got to configure it, and then you got to set it up and then run. Obviously, time was critical, so we were able to leverage the cloud in helping us accelerate that. We did that also on a different note, in a self-funding model. We didn't have the money for that, there was no budget available, but we did a self-funding model to fund that initiative. And during this process, we delivered a specific business outcome, which is helping the SP accelerate its disaster response. That was the driver. And I knew knowing in that cloud is not the destination. Cloud is an enabler of a business mission. And that's what we were focused on. Fast forward now in 2020 again, obviously no idea about what this global pandemic could or would have been. But again, it was here that we leveraged our cloud foundation in being able to respond expeditiously to this enormous volume and velocity of transactions. I'll just give you a simple case in point, just to give you some more metrics or data, if you will. So early in April, the president tweeted the SBA in one of his tweets and our main flagship portal to the world, which is called sba.gov. That went, the number of hits we had received on that in the next few hours went up by 1,000% over the next few hours. Now, obviously we had built this foundation for sp.gov in the cloud. So we were able to scale up to that without a blink of an eye. And that is just a paramount example of how the cloud enabled us to be able to be responsive. So let me just come back to the 90 day sprints now. So that's just a quick example that I got out of the way. So one of the other things that I learned firsthand in the implementation of the cloud in our response to the disaster was, The federal world operates under a lot of policies, and rightfully those policies exist to ensure compliance, ensure consistency, and ensure cybersecurity and other compliance meet needs that are met. So the Office of Management and Budget, or the OMB, usually brings out these policies. So one of such policy that was in place was called as the Trusted Internet Connections, or TIC, or TIC for short. And what I realized was that this Trusted Internet Connections policy from the OMB had been put in place about almost 12 to 14 years ago. Obviously, the cloud did not exist then, so they did not have that factored in. And back to my earlier comment about challenging the status quo and being innovative, I went around that and said, look, we have to find a better way to meet the requirement of this policy. We all have to comply to it. But this policy is something which is quite dated, and that is hindering our ability to adopt services through the cloud. And so I've worked with three main agencies, Office of Management and Budget, OMB, Department of Homeland Security, DHS, and our General Services Administration, which is GSA, and did a 90-day modernization pilot with these three agencies, along with the SBA team, to show that we can meet the goal and the intents of the policy, the TIC, or the Trusted Internet Connections policy, and also to help them inform that the policy needed to be updated. And so the two things, factors that I used in that case was collaboration and using a demonstrative approach. And what I mean by that is showing them versus telling them. So what we did is we again used an agile mindset and we had daily standup meetings and we had sprints and our releases. So in a 90 day calendar timeframe, we showed that how we could meet the goal and the intent of the tech policy that actually became the foundation for the update to this policy. By the way, this is a federal policy, impacts all federal government. And quite frankly, it impacts the entire public sector. And what I mean by that obviously is the state, usually the policies follow from federal government to state and local governments and counties and municipalities. So the entire public sector, if you will, gets impacted by these policies in due course. So the work I led actually helped inform the policy update the federal level policy update and became what's called now the tick 3.0 policy. And that has been claimed as a future model of updating policies in the IT world, specifically by the federal chief information officer at that point in time. And it has also allowed what is called a positional shift in these policies. These policies in the past used to be what I call are prescriptive, that you have to follow this prescriptive architecture as an example. One of the things I was able to negotiate and influence here was the fact that these policies need to be more outcome driven, meaning if you want to achieve this outcome, don't be so prescriptive. So that set the foundation to help change the policy direction to be less prescriptive and more, if you will, outcome driven. So let me kind of fast forward to another 90 day sprint we did in 2019. Another program from the Department of Homeland Security called the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. It's a mouthful CDM. Simply put, what that does is it allows the agencies and other organizations to maintain a continuous monitoring and mitigating approach to cybersecurity, and then allow you to improve your cybersecurity posture. That's a high-level view of that. So again, I worked with the Department of Homeland Security CDM team, another 90-day calendar, by the way, pilot, and did demonstrate how we could achieve the goal and intent of the CDM using a set of cybersecurity tools that we deployed at the SBA. And so if you see a recurring pattern here, 82 days in 2017, 90 days in 19, 18, and another 90 days in 19. And again, in 2020, obviously, probably I would say it was less than 90 days for our initial response to the CARES Act. So to net it out, one of the things I've known from my private sector is that the three key takeaways of that is you have to deliver tangible value to gain credibility. Obviously, in most IT situations, you have to establish your credibility as a leader or as an organization. And you can only demonstrate, I shouldn't say only, but the best way to demonstrate and to gain credibility is by demonstrating and showcasing capabilities that you build and the outcomes they drive for the business. So back in case in point, as we build a cloud foundation, we were able to help with the mission SBA's mission for disaster response in an accelerated fashion. So that was the mission outcome we were supporting. Back again now in 2020 with COVID, we were able to support the mission by allowing use of these technologies and enabling responses there. So that's number one. Number two is you have to challenge the status quo. And the examples of the trusted internet connections modernization, the CDM modernization, are prime examples of something that was in place for a period of time. It required discussion, it required partnership, it required collaboration with other constituents and stakeholders to be able to influence and drive change there. And last but not the least is you have to, like I've talked in the past, is you have to take a business approach first and use technology as a solution enabler. You don't start with the technology, you talk about outcomes, business outcomes, and then see what technologies help you get there. So long ways of answering your question. I love the 555 methodology. I think the 90-day mark, calendar day, it seems daunting, but at least I've seen in this past four years that every year we delivered a major transformative initiative in a 90-day calendar, 30-day timeframe. So what I would want to say as a takeaway here is that this is about demonstrating the art of the possible. We all talk about the art of the possible, but demonstrating that you can achieve it, you can deliver something of substantive impact To the business is really that what matters at the end of the day and doing it over a repeated period of time every year consistently across different domains is i think just showcases that if you have the desire and the will to do it you can set your mind and you can do it
0: that was really great so you said a lot there i don't have enough time to fully summarize everything but there are three things you said it was those last three things that were i think really goal okay if you're a CIO, a CTO, product manager, designer, all different types of titles of people that we have come on the Tech Tables podcast, you said one, deliver tangible value to gain credibility. So good. Outcomes, really driving those business outcomes. And then number two, you said challenge the status quo. So good. Again, number three, business approach and technology as enabler. So good. Yeah. Any domain you're in, those three will will take you pretty far. So... Right. Really great. So the last question I have for you, this is my wrap up question. Season two, I took this from a podcast I really called invest like the best from a guy named Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And he always ends up each podcast with what's the nicest thing someone has done for you. So Sanjay, I'm so really curious now, what's the nicest thing someone has done for you?
1: Wow. That's a head scratcher. I can't think of something so immediately but i would say i think the thing that comes to my mind first and foremost is having an open approach to things having the ability to do reasonable dialogue and i think one of the things i found is when i talk about the art of the possible i approach these things with the intent of saying look let's talk about what outcomes we're driven for and i found a reasonable audience quite frankly i was told by many people I was still new and I'm still considered new myself to the public sector and I'll ask questions and I don't think any question is quote unquote not the right question to ask. I'll ask questions regardless is that people are generally reasonable but if you start with the outcomes and you work with the outcomes and you explain the rationale what you're trying to do I think you'll be surprised at what kind of response you get and being open about it and having this an open dialogue so that's probably what comes to mind on the first go.
0: Love it. Awesome. And where can people find you? Do you hang out on LinkedIn, Twitter? Where do you hang out most?
1: Mostly on LinkedIn. I'm active on Twitter as well. Not a lot, but probably LinkedIn is probably more active for me.
0: Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Sanjay. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from techtables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events. We offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify.